Sometimes when I've been in gospel meetings, I'll go in an area where I know absolutely no one, maybe other than the person who invited me. And there's some interest in that. You meet a whole lot of folks, but I can assure you that is not the case this morning. Uh, Many of you I have literally known my entire life, and it's so good to see you, and then I see others that I've, I've known from all different kinds of walks of life, and though we all live close by, sometimes you just don't run into each other that often, and so it's really good to see you this morning, appreciate you being here, and for sure, I want to thank those who are not Christians for being here this morning, that's a big step for you, and I appreciate that. It may be that you're here by someone's invitation or just out of your own interest, whatever the case. I hope that the lesson, both this morning and throughout the week, will be an encouragement to you. And I hope that you can come back and hear these things that we're going to talk about. It's been a while back now, but I started in my personal study whenever I would enter into a topic. Just to take a minute and to find where that topic makes its way into the Bible, and then where it leads. So first mention, last mention. And sometimes I've done that, and I've really not made much of a connection there. Seems not to really be a big point that's being made. And sometimes you look at it, and you think, well, there may be something there that's not coincidental. And then sometimes it's just a slap in the face that God's saying, I need to get your attention about something. And I think what we're going to talk about this morning fits into that latter category. That when we think about singing, we look at the first time that really, at least in a major way, singing is discussed in the Bible. And that's in Exodus chapter 15, which here in a few minutes we're going to spend some time there and look at that hymn, that first hymn that's really recorded for us there. And then the final time that we see singing in a big way and a hymn recorded is in Revelation 15. Now the 15s are are ironic, I suppose. We know those were added long after the fact. But what's not so ironic is, A, we've got singing making its way into the Bible very early in the Bible story. And then lasting until the final closing pages of the Bible. But what's more important than that is that the very first song that we have recorded for us in the Bible, at least denoted as that, is mentioned when the very last song that's mentioned in the Bible and denoted as a hymn is being sung. And so this morning, what I'd like to do is to spend some time looking at these two songs to see what we're being told to a people long, long ago, but yet that message, certainly not dying away, that's being spoken to people much later and then even to us. And so as we consider this, we're going to start here in the book of Exodus, and we're going to look at this time when this great hymn of victory is being sung. But we need to lay a little groundwork before we do that. Before we look fully at it, there's some things that we need to understand, and I'm not going to spend a long time on this point, but it's important for us to see, first of all, that as we're looking at Exodus 15, we've got to have Genesis on the mind. We've got to be understanding what's been going on in the book of Genesis, and in particular, Genesis chapter 3. Now, we're going to talk a little bit more about that this afternoon, but just by way of reminder, uh, I'll, I'll let you... Uh, 
remind you of this, that this is where we're seeing sin making its entrance into the world. And the one who's bringing that in is identified in no other way except the serpent. Now, that's all we know in Genesis chapter 3. But yet what God tells us is this serpent was more shrewd than all of the beasts of the field. I want you to pay particular attention to that word shrewd. That as God is telling us about this beast, and by the way, throughout the Bible, that word is used many times in a very positive sense. When you get to the book of Proverbs, you find it being used quite a bit. But here we're seeing that God is saying he's wily, he's cunning, he's crafty. That's the idea that we're looking at here. Now, when we come to the book of Exodus, Exodus is set up in such a way so that it's mimicking Genesis. So we we open the book of Exodus, we have the people of God, and we're specifically told that they are going forth and multiplying. And we have them living in a land that's quite prosperous, that's providing all their needs, yet something's not quite right here. Because whereas in Genesis, the people of God were living in this place where all their needs were being met, but it was a paradise. When we look in Exodus, the people of God who are are eating off the good of the land are imprisoned. They're actually under the leadership of someone who we're going to see is quite opposed to the Lord. But I want you to notice in particular in verse 10 of chapter 1 that when God is describing Pharaoh, he gives us a quote from him here. And as he's looking at the children of Israel and they multiplied and they're getting big and Pharaoh's getting worried about they might join with the enemy against us. Here's his quote. He says, come let us deal shrewdly with them. Now let's don't forget our Genesis connection. So we get to Genesis 3 and we've got this serpent who's acting awfully shrewd. We open the book of Exodus and right in the beginning, we got this guy who's acting very shrewd. And I think what's going on here is God is saying in this telling of the story, this Pharaoh is going to be the serpent. He's the one who's taken on this role where he's abusing the people of God, where he's he's not doing what God's desiring. And in fact, that's really going to be the emphasis of this. That this Pharaoh, this one who's, who's taken on the form of the serpent, is going up against the Lord God. And you'll recall in chapter 5 as Moses is commissioned to go and to, to bring this message to Pharaoh Pharaoh listens to all of this, and then he makes this very arrogant statement, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I'm the God around here. I'm the one who's in control. And who is this deity that you're talking about who is going to tell me what to do? And so here Pharaoh is acting as the serpent against the people of God. He's taking on God. But God's not going to let him get away with it. And so what we'll see then over the next few chapters is God is going to bring terror on the land of Egypt. 
And you'll recall all these plagues are going to start coming. And I'll suggest to you this, that what we're seeing is a pretty repetitive story throughout the Bible where God creates, but if people do not take advantage of His creation, He decreates so that He can recreate. We're going to see all that taking place in this story. And so when we start looking at all of these plagues, it's as if God is taking Genesis 1 and almost putting it in reverse. All of the things that he's created for this land of Egypt that's under the control of this serpent king, he's now going to decreate these things. And so whereas at one point the waters are teeming with all kinds of of life and God will actually use that against them for a while, But yet the point I want us to see is he's now destroying that. When that water becomes to blood, it's going to kill everything within it. So rather than that beautiful hymn of life in Genesis chapter 1, we're now seeing this hymn of death. So all the aquatic life is dying away. And the animal life is being destroyed. Disease ravages the land. It's taking all that away. Uh, The hail comes and it's, it's killing the animals in the field. We see that happening. We then find that the plant life is being destroyed. That's a biggie in Genesis 1, isn't it? Where God is is making all of these trees and uh, we turn to Genesis 2 and a little more emphasis on that for mankind here though. All of that's being wiped out. It's, It's being taken away. We find going back to the very start of the book of Genesis with the very first quote where God says, let there be light, he turns off the lights in Egypt. Three days of darkness, and it says it was so dark, they couldn't even see their hand in front of their face. And then finally we see that with the firstborn, life is going to be swallowed up in death. So you look at the days of creation, and then you look at this time in the land of Egypt, and God is saying, I'm going to answer your question. Who is this Lord? Here I am is what he's saying. So this great superpower with the serpent king who believes he's in control of all is being brought down very low. But now simultaneously, what God is going to do is he's going to recreate his people. Now, you look again, we're going to have some of this Genesis language coming out where the people who are the people of God, they're going to be guided by this light. They're coming out of Egypt, they have this light that's showing them the way, they're going to have this cloud over them, that's going to be a light for them at night. So God is showing them the way. And I think this is so interesting here. When they get to the Red Sea and they don't know what they're going to do, they're terrorized by this, and Moses says, just let God work. You'll see what he can do. And it says a strong east wind separated the water from the land. So we've got that Genesis idea then of the water and land separating. But when you look in in the Hebrew Bible, the word for spirit and wind and breath are all the same words. And sometimes there's a little bit of an interplay going on with those. And so in Genesis 1, you had the spirit hovering over the water. Here you've got the wind That same word, separating the water from the land. God's preparing a way for His people. He's ready to make them into that nation that He promised. And so while all this is going on, finally God says, now it's time to bring 
Egypt to its conclusion. And so as they're chasing after Israel, the darkness is separating them. They can never quite catch up. And then we find as they go into the waters of the Red Sea, those waters collapse down over them, destroying what was the force of the world. And you think about Genesis 1, where the chaotic waters are there. And now for this serpent king, he's met his own chaotic waters. God has brought him down. God has said, you are not going to rival me. And so this would-be serpent is defeated. And the land and the water in one final show of decreation comes together. And death results. Can you imagine being an Israelite watching all of that? They're going to forget, unfortunately, pretty easily, but let's leave that for another day. Let's just think about them standing over on the safe side, the salvation side of the Red Sea. And as they watch all of that, Moses is going to say, let's learn a song. Let's think about how God has saved you in such a way so that you can sing this song and you can teach it to your children now. I don't know that Moses divided it up into verses like we do, though the song kind of fits in that pattern, as we'll see. But if you're not in Exodus 15 already, go ahead and and make your way over there. And let's just take a look at this song that's being sung by the people of God as Moses directs them here. We look in verses 1 through 5, and we might simply entitle this part of the hymn, The Glorious Lord. Pay attention to that word glorious as we go through. And Moses said, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The, man, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. What has the glorious Lord done? Well, Moses begins this by saying, tell you what, I'm going to sing about it. I'm going to record his glory in this song about how he has triumphed over the forces of wicked. And what we see in the introductory part of this hymn is there is absolutely no power that can, can go up against God. Is that a lesson Israel needed to know? Yes. Weren't they fearful? Weren't they already telling Moses, why did you do this? Just send us back. We'd rather die there. Moses has stopped all of that. There's no power that can defeat God. Well, let's continue on. Here's our word glorious again. Beginning in verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power, your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversary. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. 
You blew them with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. He says the glorious Lord has been proven glorious in the power that he's given. And his works are, are incomparable to human efforts. I have a lot of favorite verses in this hymn, but verse 9 is for sure one of them. Because this is showing the arrogance. And the writer here is pointing that out, that as Moses is singing this song, he's making an emphasis on this, this one, this Egypt pictured as a person, the Pharaoh, saying, this is what I'm going to do. I'll pursue, I'll overtake, I'll divide the spoils. And then did you notice what the hymn says God did? You blew them with your wind, your breath, your spirit, and they sank into the sea. They couldn't stand up against you. Look at verses 11 and 12. One more of our verses here emphasizing his glory. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. We had any other swallowings taking place in the book of Exodus? We think about how Aaron's staff swallowed up the others. And here Moses is saying, this is what God has done to the forces that are against him. They've been swallowed up. You are majestic in glory and holiness. And then as he ends this hymn, verses 13 down through 17, he says, you have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the land of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone." Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. And then in verse 17 he says, You will bring them in and plant them on your mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. As he brings the hymn to a close, the emphasis now is on God's love for his people. And if you look at verse 17, I think we have another reminiscence back to Genesis 1 and 2 where he says you've taken them and you've planted them where you are. Where you are. In your sanctuary. That word planted is the same word that we read over in Genesis 2 with God planting the garden. And so God is, is saying to his people, this is what I've done for you. I've taken you. I've brought you to me. And he says, now what's going to happen is I am going to reign forever and ever. Isn't that a beautiful song? That when you think about what they had experienced and how this is now being recorded, and for those Israelites who were at least trying to stay faithful, how they could have remembered these grand words. Well, let's keep that in mind. And now let's go to the other end of the Bible. 
And we have another occasion here where there's going to be a song of victory being sung, this time though of much greater proportion, but let's not forget Pharaoh quite yet. Because what the Bible is going to do even after the Exodus account is it's going to continue to compare Pharaoh as kind of this little miniature human version of Satan. Here is the one who's trying to be the serpent. This will, of course, happen many years after the Exodus, but we think about the words of Ezekiel and how he makes this point so clearly. As he's prophesying against Egypt, he says, Behold, the Lord says, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, the great dragon that lies in the midst of the streams, that says, The Nile is my own. I have made it myself. In just a couple of chapters over in 32, he says, Son of man, raise a lamentation over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and say to him, You consider yourself a lion of the nations, but you are like a dragon in the seas. You burst forth in your rivers, trouble the waters with your feet, and foul their rivers. Ezekiel is making a very clear point that as he's talking about Pharaoh, he's using language that we're going to find very much associated with Satan because that's who he's trying to be. That's who he's trying to mimic by going up against the Lord. Now let's pull all that Genesis and Exodus and Ezekiel language forward. And we then come to the conclusion, the concluding book anyway, of the Bible. And as we get to the book of Revelation, we're going to find here that there's a number of similarities between this book and Exodus. John, as he's, he's recording all of this, there's a heavy emphasis back on the book of Exodus. Let's just look at a couple of examples here. We find, just like in the book of Exodus, we've got an empire that's persecuting God's people. You've got this empire that's coming up against them, that's persecuting the faithful of God. And one of the the parts of Revelation that would really make that Exodus connection is, God is going to show how He's going to decreate. He's going to take this people down just as He took Pharaoh, that dragon of old, down as well. And so it's no surprise then that as we open the pages of Revelation, we find all these plagues, right? You read the word plague, that's going to immediately take you back to the book of Exodus. And so here is God, he's saying, you are not going to set yourself up as God. You are not going to persecute my people without penalty. And so the plagues begin to come, and then just as the song of Moses ended, we find in chapter 11 of Revelation in verse 15, where it says, John recording, God will reign forever and ever. Many years later, same point. God is in control. God is the one who is going to win. So let's look over to Revelation 15 now. When we come to this chapter, we're going to find here a lot of similarities to what we saw back in chapter 15 of the book of Exodus. Let me make one or two little points here that are going to side note, and then we'll get back to chapter 15. I'm not going to turn here, but over in chapter 21, it talks about the sea is no more. (laughs) Kind of think what that's saying is that those chaotic waters that we've been dealing with and Genesis 1 and Exodus, those early chapters, they're going to be gone. They're done away with. God is going to bring his people back to that paradise setting. Well, let's look and see what we find here in chapter 15. 
because this people is standing at their own Red Sea. I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them is the wrath of God finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire. It's our Red Sea. We have the people standing here. And what's going to happen? Well, let's continue on. Those who had been conquered by the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands, and they sang the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Why are these people, all these years later, singing the song of Moses? Well, what was going on? God is bringing down a serpent-aligned empire. Those who are trying to persecute the people of God, those who are trying to take the place of God, God is saying, I'm going to bring you down. And our first big example of that is when Moses and the people stand victoriously on the other side of the Red Sea, seeing the destruction that God has brought. And so too to these people. And so as they sing this song of the Lamb, we understand by, that, by this point, something pretty significant has happened. Something big has taken place. Because God has now brought the one who has defeated the serpent. And these people, unlike those way back in the book of Exodus, could see this picture rolled out, could see everything that God has done. And so as they're singing the song of Moses, they're also singing about the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ and His defeat of evil. And though it appears that this serpent, this dragon is still thrashing about, they can know that God wins. That God is victorious. And they can also know that all nations are going to come and they're going to bow to God. Now they may not do it willingly, but the song is saying they're all going to come. So what do we see in all of this? We see that ultimate victory is not going to be through the staff of Moses. That was a big deal. That was a big victory. But ultimate victory is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And what both of these songs have in common is they recognize that God wins. Where they part is how that ultimate victory takes place. And that's through Jesus Christ. Now, as we land the plane, I want to leave you with something very practical to think about from this. The thoughts we've dealt with are, are grand and noble thoughts. But one of the impacts that I think they need to have on us is our singing. If God is bringing that concept of singing in, 
with praise about his glory and ending with that, I think there's a message for us. And that message is simple enough, isn't it? That when we sing, we need to be remembering the power of God. We need to understand who God is and what he can do. And I tell you, that little line that Moses starts out with is going to appear some more in the Bible. I will sing to the Lord. Psalm 13, David's in trouble. What does he do? He says, I know who's going to get me out of it. Psalm 104, you've got this song of creation. And again, emphasizing God and his power and his glory in that. And so then, when I'm singing these songs, I need to understand and to concentrate on God's glorious power. Singing moves us in a way, in many ways, different than preaching. Singing has a lot of emotion involved in it. Singing is, is bringing from our hearts thoughts that are put in, in words in a much different way. And what those songs must do is to emphasize who God is. And I would suggest to us, we would not be amiss in including a lot of the language from Exodus 15 and Revelation 15 in those songs, as some of ours do. Let me also encourage this for us, that we remember in our singing that God cares about his people. Sometimes it's easy to feel that God has forgotten. Over the years, I've tried to work with people and help people who have just gotten so turned off from God. And I would guess that the commonality in that is that there was a problem. The problem was prayed about, but it didn't appear that an answer was given. And it's awfully easy when those times come to think that God has forgotten. Can you think about the people of Israel who had labored under that hard bondage for many, many years? And you would think that, that they cried out to God, they prayed to God, and yet day after day the taskmasters were there, and the day after day life seemed just the same. I suspect the same was true for the Christians of the first century. That though they had this grand, glorious picture, the day-to-day -day realities were pressing in. I don't want to be gloomy. But you and I need to realize that if a nation lasts long enough, it's going to put on the garments of the beast. No matter when you live, and you can look through the Bible and see this, we had Egypt, we had Babylon, we had uh, the Roman Empire, all these different nations grew boastful and powerful and prideful. And even in our post-biblical history, you see the same thing happening, that nations rise and fall. And I tell you, I don't like the direction that things are going. I'm, I'm not pessimistic about it because God can surely change those things. But yet you and I still need to be prepared for that. That there may come a day when we don't have the same liberties and freedoms and, and uh, the ability to, to meet as we're doing now. It's going to be at those times that we need to be singing about the victory of Moses and the Lamb. 
Because just as it did for Israel and just as it did for the people in the first century, so it will do for us to remind us who we are, but more importantly than that, to remind us of who we serve. And that we refuse to allow anyone with any amount of intimidation to ever cast a disparaging shadow against that. And that's what we do when we sing these songs of victory. Singing is a sign of confidence. That when you can sing about God destroying his enemy in those waters, when you can think about God bringing every nation to bow, that's a confidence that we have not in ourselves but in the one we serve. And then let me remind you of this also. That when we sing in this way and remember God, we understand that God is reigning and that we're going to reign with Him. Now, can I explain to you all about that? I cannot. But I think about Revelation 22. The night will be no more. Darkness is gone. They'll have no need of the lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And that's not the only place we're told that. However... That's going to happen. God says, I want you to understand that if you're on my side, you're on the winning side, and it will not be for naught. And so finally, when we sing, let's remember that it's all about God. In this, we have a pretty major responsibility. There are so many really beautiful hymns that have been written over the years. <clears throat> you know, sometimes you'll be in a group of Christians and you'll get in the discussion. What's your favorite hymn? I don't know if you're like me. Mine changes on a fairly regular basis. A lot of times it's what I'm going on, what's going on in my life that a hymn may come to the forefront. But we all have those. And those who choose our songs for the assembly have such an important work, such an important job, which, by the way, you have done masterfully this morning. Those songs of victory, those songs of exaltation. But that falls to all of us to make sure that the hymns that we're singing are not just some kind of sentimentality. We're not singing just because it's got a really nice beat to it, that it's different, that it's new, that it's old. None of those things need to matter. What matters is that God is being glorified. And that can take a lot of forms. You look at the book of Psalms and their songs of praise and their songs of lament and their songs of distress. They take lots of different forms, but God's always center. And that needs to be the case for us as well. So we look forward to that day when we'll be with God. But where we are right now, we need to understand that we are with Him. And that His glory must always be the themes of our songs, just as we find in the song of Moses and the Lamb. So we think about this beautiful picture that stretches from cover to cover of the Bible. Of a God who wants a people, a God who is there for His people, a God who protects His people, and a God who will save His people. And when we understand that, our singing should reflect that glory. And our lives should reflect that glory.
And I hope that's the case for a people of the 21st century who are trusting in that same God to save them. Thank you for your good attention this morning. If you're not a Christian, I hope you see the God that we're talking about. It's God who says, when you're on my side, I care for you, I love you, I, I, I want you to be my people. And that's such an important concept in salvation, to know that God wants us, God wants me. This great God who spans our time and, and eternally as well, cares about you. And he wants you to be saved. A lot of interesting things about baptism, isn't there? Passing through the waters, on the one side enslaved, on the other side victory. You'd almost think that that links up with uh, these things we've looked at this morning, wouldn't you? And that waits for you if you're ready to commit to him and ready to say that I know by your grace I am saved. God says, when you pass through those waters with me, I'll defeat in your life that one who's got hold of you. And I will bring you to victory where you can be with me forever. If you need to respond to his invitation this morning, you can do so now as we stand and sing together.